don't know the power of the dark side. I'm not a baby, I'm a man. I am an anchor man. Is this a kissing book? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? Hello and welcome along to episode four of Just Like in the Movies brought to you by gkmedia.ie. Episode four of series five, I should say. And uh, well done and thank you to everyone who has been supporting the show because I'm delighted to say that we reached number seven in the Film Reviews podcast category during the week. And that is speaking globally. So, uh, wow. Everyone who has been supporting the show, streaming it, downloading it, recommending it to their friends, and so on. This episode, we are going to be speaking to the Galway Film Flash program director, Will Fitzgerald, about what we can expect from this year's Galway Film Flash, which will be going ahead, but going ahead only online. And we'll be looking as well at a number of things that are on Netflix at the moment, including Last Dance, Becoming Unorthodox, and a classic movie with Stanley Tucci. First off, welcome Lisa Tracy. Good evening, Gary Kelly. Welcome Dave Coyne. Hi everybody, nice to be here. Let's look at Jerry Seinfeld, 23 Hours to Kill, a one-hour stand-up show on Netflix. Dave Coyne, are you a fan of Jerry? Uh, I am and I amn't. I mean, sometimes I think he's a genius and other times I think he's an idiot. Um, But I think that's part of his act. Uh, it was very interesting, uh, no spoilers here for anybody, but you know, at the beginning of the episode, he, he's in a helicopter flying across the Hudson and he jumps out of a helicopter, James Bond style, and it's actually him. And there's like mm. a, a crash zoom to his face and a freeze frame to show that this is Jerry Seinfeld jumping out of a helicopter into the water. And then at the end of the one hour stand up comedy special, it shows him training and prepping for that actual jump. And I just thought to myself, what the hell are they doing having him jump out of a helicopter to do a one-hour comedy special, which is basically him in a really sharp suit doing stand-up for an hour in front of an audience. What's that got to do with jumping out of a helicopter? Nothing is the answer. I thought it was a great stand-up show. Um, I just found it was, it was going so fast, I wasn't even getting the opportunity to digest some of the jokes because I thought a lot of the stuff that he was tapping into was actually really, really good comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like the bit about the phone is the thing that gets around and it's just using humans to transport itself. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, I, it was good. It was it was good, solid stand-up, I got to say. Lisa? I have to say, if, if I was his wife, though, I'd be like, oh, well, that's how you feel. Nice. <laughs> ah, come on, all comedians do that. All good comedians do that. You know, they obviously get their permission from their wives and they probably get given out afterwards. But then he brings home a very big check and she says, OK, honey, no problem. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of sneakingly laughing when he was doing the skits about the wife. But then my wife beside me was laughing out quite loud and he was doing skits about husbands just being pathetic. <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, how was that funny? <laughs> <laughs> It's a quick, easy watch. It's one hour. Uh, it's not going to be run along the couch, belly laughs or anything like that. But it's but there's a lot of chuckles watch. in there. It's very good. Yeah, I mean, I think I laughed out loud maybe twice, mm. and the rest of it was chuckling. I think, in fairness, there's better stand-up comedians out there. They're just not as rich. <laughs> it's probably the most expensive hour of stand-up comedy ever made in terms of how what he got paid for it. I'm sure. There you go. That is Jerry Seinfeld, 23 Hours to Kill. There's not really too much to talk about it because it's just a stand-up comedy show and we don't want to be destroying the jokes by trying to paraphrase them ourselves. But it is, you know, it's worth a watch if you're looking for some light entertainment. Last Dance, Lisa, would we uh, call that light entertainment? Oh, we would call that. I think it's in the realm of the great sports documentaries, if not documentaries, so far that I've seen of all time. Elaborate. 
Okay, because you've got like so much drama and you've got like the most charismatic, enigmatic figure in Michael Jordan. Like he's just unreal. Like the man is like Midas. He turns his hand to anything and he just he just makes gold. He's amazing. And just to watch the story behind the 97-98 season and all that went with it and just, you know, even the like going back to the beginnings of Michael Jordan and his number two, whose name escapes me right now, Scotty Pippen. And then, uh, you know, just the the way they brought themselves up and just got to the the height of it. And and then all the drama that goes with it, with like the, the contracts and negotiations and, and managers. And it's just, it's brilliant. Like it's really well done, well played documentary. Like they're just, I, I just thought it was very good. I'm hooked. Like I've, I've already watched three episodes today. This to me is what a great documentary is because Lisa, I've known you for years and you're not a basketball fan. No. <laughs> you're probably not even uh, an American sports fan. No. But yet this still gripped you. Absolutely. But it's like, it's up there with like Senna. It's up there with When We Were Kings. You know, it's that kind of just, just because it's sport, it's a game. There's so much passion and energy and everything in it that, you know, and basketball, you know, to me, I'm like, oh yeah, basketball up and down the court, blah, blah, blah. But this is like, this is like a whole nother level. This isn't just, this isn't just basketball. It's just unreal. I kind of agree with Lisa in many ways. And I have to say that after about 20 minutes into it, into the first episode, I thought to myself, what am I watching this for? I, I know nothing about basketball and I have no interest in this. And I, you know, this is not for me. I'm not the the demographic for it. But subsequent to that, I've watched, I think, five, four or five episodes at this stage. And wow. it is it is indeed riveting. Um, obviously, you know, these guys were the greatest uh, basketball proponents of all time. You know, the story is amazing. The drama, Dennis Rodman going off on a bender to Vegas, etc., it is very compelling and um, very well made. The music is good. The pacing is good. The structure of each episode kind of focuses on one person. Uh, obviously, uh, Michael Jordan is throughout, but, you know, they focus on Scottie Pippen. They focus on the coach. They focus on Dennis Rodman. They focus on events. And it's I love the little visual thing of moving from left to right with the timeline kind of scrolling. Yeah, that's and good. It's just a clever trope to give people a sense of time. And um, it's it's a very good documentary. And as Lisa said, the events in it are compelling, regardless of whether you're a, a basketball fan or not. Let's stick with America because so much is going on with COVID-19 and politics is playing a big role at the moment. And certainly people are comparing the current president of the U.S., to the previous administration and how maybe things might have been handled if the previous administration was still involved in government in America. But certainly taking things from a different angle, we get an insight on a former first lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, because of course the Obamas have signed a new deal with Netflix to give a better insight into their lives. And Becoming is one following, I suppose, the life of Michelle Obama. It's an intimate documentary, uh, giving us more a look back on where she came from to who she is today and possibly where she is going to go in the future. Lisa, what did you make of Becoming with Michelle Obama? I thought it was an excellent, excellent documentary. Like, it's not only like historical and like there's so much there's so much there like she's the first lady the first african-american first lady you know it's just her life is is amazing she's an incredibly talented woman incredibly accomplished woman 
but also it's hilarious like I was laughing out loud for like loads of it and I also did cry a little bit in some parts so it's an emotional roller coaster almost but it's it's great I loved it excellent have we seen enough of these type of American stories you know the the rags to riches mm, no everybody loves a rags to riches story surely <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sick of them. I want to. I want to be in one someday. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what did you make of the coming? I think it was. I mean, it was a good documentary. It was. Uh, I mean, there was nothing um, majorly outstanding in it in ter- for me. Thankfully, it wasn't a series. It was just a standalone hour and a half or whatever it was. Um, interesting. She's a. She's an amazing lady and. It's an amazing story. And obviously Barack Obama is was an amazing president, in my opinion. And I did like the fact that we didn't see or hear his name for about 30 minutes. It was just yeah. focused on her. And then about 30 minutes in, he appears. And I was kind of thinking, oh, God, yeah, you know, where's he been for the entire documentary? Um, <laughs> I thought it was a bit cynical, the back end of this. You know, she's this great woman, great story. And this is basically a documentary following her on a book tour which I personally mm. find a bit cynical. So she was in these uh, huge stadiums signing books and there's scenes of her with, you know, a hundred books on the table and she's signing them. It's just a money-making racket uh, to a point. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people do this. She actually is a very good uh, person. Uh, you know, she seems like a very intelligent person and she's um, has a lot of good things to say. So as Lisa said, there was a few moments of laugh out loud. Uh, I liked it when she was telling, trying to get the girls up on the last day in the office in the White House, and she's like, "Right, girls, come on, the Trumps are getting the Trump Trumps are coming." And of course, everybody's laughing and rolling their eyes at the same time, you know. So <laughs> there was a few moments of goodness like that. It's a decent, solid documentary, but I won't be reaching for her book anytime soon. There's so much content out there now, and I suppose people are trying to choose what they should be spending their valuable time watching. Is this a documentary really that people need to see? Is there anything that they're really going to take from it besides knowing a little bit more about who Michelle Obama is? For me, I don't think so. There's nothing new in this documentary. Whereas if you look at uh, The Last Dance, this is a whole behind the scenes event of a big public event we're getting to see behind the scenes. Uh, with, with this, it's just like, yeah, we know all this already. Like most of it is like, yeah. I don't know. I think it's important to kind of reiterate what happened in America in the last decade that, uh, you know, well, previous to the last decade, it's a changing country and it needs to like keep changing and change, change back to the way it was in 2008. But um, it riled up a nation when Barack Obama, well, not a nation, it riled up a lot of crazy people when he got elected. And, uh, you know, and now we have the fruits of that election and it's it's still it's interesting to see because you know it's it, there's no no harm in like educating people who might not be aware of all that went with him getting elected into into the white house you know there's like people need to be aware that there's crazies out there that are racist bad people and that you know there's one in the white house so i don't know it needs to that needs to change and america needs to keep on changing lisa has a point there like i mean for me i didn't the documentary was fine it didn't you know make me sit up and pay attention because obviously I've, I'm a political-ish animal and I'm well aware of all these things. But as Lisa correctly said, people who aren't political animals probably should watch this documentary just to get an insight into the world as it is. And obviously the world is swinging on a pendulum at the moment and uh, hopefully things will swing back in the correct direction, if you ask me. Okay, well, the next show we're going to look at is Unorthodox. And I haven't personally had a chance to watch it because I was too busy finishing off watching Hollywood, which I loved. 
Uh, I know Dave has seen it all. Lisa hasn't, so we won't see anything more about it, but a great show. And I, I don't know, have you come across the show on Sky, Babylon Berlin? I'm currently watching that as well. No. No, I've never even heard about. of it. Okay. It's in the third season. It's oh, is it about a nightclub? No. Uh, the first season, <laughs> possibly. But it, it, it's, oh. it's all about kind of um, that period of time between World War One and World War Two in, in Germany, in Ber- Berlin. Oh, not about a nightclub then. <laughs> no, but there is a nightclub in it. Uh, okay. But it's quite fascinating. And the first season was amazing. Season two was like, yeah. And season three just seems to be very different, but possibly not in a good way, we'll say like Westworld 3. Uh, anyways, Unorthodox is the story of a young Jewish woman who flees her arranged marriage and religious community to start a new life abroad. And it's getting amazing reviews online. It's the first season uh, and it's it's just about three and a half hours long in total. Lisa, you were the one who recommended us to watch it. Slap on the hand or a slap on the wrist for me for not seeing it yet. But you mm. love it. I did. I thought it was excellent. It's uh, I know that's my go-to word. But there's a lot of good content out there these days. Yeah, it's about Etsy, and she is, has an arranged marriage with this boy whose name escapes me right now. But Yankee. they are Yankee. Yeah, um, he they're Hasidic Jews in Williamsburg in New York, in Brooklyn. I think it's in Brooklyn. It's a whole other realm of society that you you just you just you're not aware of. You don't realize that like people you know, are so closed off from the world, like until you watch something like this, which is written by a girl from there. And uh, it's, you know, she's, it's unreal. Like, you know, the, the head shaving was the one that got me. I was just like, oh my God, her hair, <laughs> you know, and then, and for the, before the wedding or no, after the wedding actually. And then there's, everything is, everything is all like, oh, I don't know, clandestine and, you know, so secretive and, you know, she can't even learn to play, play piano in public. And it's just, it's, it's, it's mad. It's, it's unreal. But like, and she's a very brave, very strong girl that she was able to get away and uh, flee to Berlin where she found a whole nother life for herself. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. It was just really awesome. I liked it. Yeah, I have to say it was it was interesting. It was intriguing. It was a little bit cinematic at the beginning. The young girl played by Shira Haas, who plays Esther Shapiro, or it's Esty, as uh, Lisa outlined. She is just magnetic. I mean, she's only a kid, and she's just magnetic. Uh, she's I, I see big things for her. She's got um, a striking look. She does have a touch of Natalie Portman about her, that kind of innocent intensity and... Uh, you know, the, I've only seen the first episode and I will certainly be giving it a uh, revisit uh, the second and third episodes and see how it goes. But it's it's um, very interesting. It's a different world. It's a world that like, you know, as a as a Catholic um, Irish person, I'm completely unaware of this world other than, you know, movies. And um, even this is a deeper look into this world that you, than you've ever seen before. You know, you see things in this that you haven't seen in other movies or TV shows. It's very, very good. It's just a good, solid piece of entertainment. We'll finish off on a happy note before uh, I go over and join Will Fitzgerald at the Goey Film Flat. We decided to maybe take a look at some classics which are on Netflix at the moment. And Dave, even speaking of the Film Flat, you mentioned Stanley Tucci, who was at the Flat a few years ago doing a masterclass. His movie, The Big Night, from 96, wasn't it? 96, yeah. I remember when Stanley Tucci was at the Flat. And I worked mm-hmm. at the FLA a long time. You know, I've seen masterclasses with Pierce Brosnan, Kathy Bates, you name it. Many, many people. I've forgotten half of them. And mm-hmm. Stanley Tucci's masterclass, acting masterclass, was the best actor's masterclass I've ever been at. 
in my life. And I've been at quite a few wow. of these things. He is a pure gentleman. And ever since yeah. I met him at the FLA, I just, I, I gorged on all of his stuff. And uh, this movie, The Big Night, is a movie that I'd never seen before. And I just said we'd, we'd revisit some old movies. And it's a wonderful movie. Uh, it's set in uh, New Jersey in the 50s. Two Italian brothers are starting a restaurant and it's not going well. There's a rival restaurant who's, you know, doing well across the street. And it's got Tony Shalhoub, who everybody will know as Monk. It's got Mini Driver. Uh, Isabella Rossellini. Isabella Rossellini. Um, in home. It's just, it's a, it's a stellar cast and it's a very simple little story co-directed by Stanley Tucci and uh, Campbell Scott. And Campbell Scott also makes an appearance in it. Uh, son of George C. Scott. And uh, who also was at the film fly, I believe, uh, not at the same time as Stanley Tucci, but it's it's an excellent film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love kind of old movies like this with lots of stillness, lots of, you know, stationary camera and the actors just do their work and the camera might, you know, pan a little bit to facilitate the blocking but there's no big cuts and movement. I personally thought it was a lovely movie. I think it's the perfect Sunday afternoon movie to just sit back, relax, and, and just kind of have that time travel back to 50s in America. But Lisa... Yeah, I'm like 49 it. minutes in, and I'm like, it's all right. Oh. Like, I'm waiting for it to be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But I'm just like, oh, this is trotting along, and it's not getting good yet. I'm only as far as the part where he's talking to the Cadillac guy, and you know, and he's he's cheating on Mini Driver. Well, no spoiler alert. Sorry, Jesus, I was disappointed in Stanley for that. But because uh, you know what happens to people that cheat on Mini Driver, <laughs> you know Matt Damon and all that. Oh God, he might be listening. He's up in Dublin. Are we talking probably. about Goodwill Hunting? Or are we talking about Mini Driver and Matt Damon in real life? No, I'm in real life. He uh, he left oh. her by saying he was going out with somebody else on a TV show, and she was like, "Oh, I didn't realize we broke up." <laughs> It's very funny. Did you not? I think it was on Oprah. Yeah, I think it was on Oprah or something, and he was like, Oh yeah, this is my girlfriend or whatever. And then it was like, Oh, but but I'm your girlfriend. And uh, it was very it was very interesting. But anyway, he was young, he was in his twenties, what are you gonna do? All right. Yeah, Um, and he's still with said woman. He's still with the the woman he left her for. So yeah, that's pretty nice. Well, that's something, yeah. There is something I think just nice and magical about Big Night. It it brings me back to for me personally, why I fell in love with celluloid and just simple storytelling. That's exactly it, Gary. It, it's a simple story. Uh, the characters are, the characters is where the complexity is, not in the story. The story is relatively relatable for everybody and the complexities are in the actors and in the, the personalities within them. Apparently, Stanley Tucci, who wrote the film as well, he co-wrote, co-directed and starred in this film because he wanted to introduce uh, yeah, and he wanted an interesting part for himself. And he gave himself an interesting part. And for me, the final scene with Stanley Tucci, who plays Secondo, and Tony Shalhoub, who plays Primo, and Mark Antony, <laughs> who plays Cristiano, who is their, their waiter, their long-suffering waiter. The who doesn't, boy. I think he has like two lines in the whole movie. But the three of them are after the big climax in the film, which I won't give away to anybody. It's not exactly a spoiler alert situation. But there's a big event tonight. The big night is the night before. And then the, night, the morning after there's just a quiet scene where Stanley Tucci makes eggs and they just sit there. The camera just camera is almost stationary. I think the camera tracks a little bit towards the end, but it's very still. It's like a stage play and there's no very little dialogue and it's just, we're making eggs and it's just the morning after. And then the two brothers have a moment. There's no dialogue between them, but they have a moment of, I won't say what, and 
fade to black. And that for me is just a beautiful way to end a movie. And it was an excellent, excellent film. And I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, well, there we go. That is Jerry Seinfeld, 23 Hours to Kill, Last Dance, Becoming Unorthodox, and Sunday Afternoon Movie Choice, Big Night with an all-star cast. Lisa and Dave, thank you very much for joining us and Just Like in the Movies. Pleasure, Welcome, Gary. Up next, I'm speaking to Programme Director of the Galway Film Fla, Will Fitzgerald. Delighted to have Programme Director of the Galway Film Fla, Will Fitzgerald, join us on another series of Just Like in the Movies. Will, thanks for joining us in what I'm sure is a very, very chaotic time for you. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Thanks. I'm <laughs> glad to be back. Uh, it is chaos, but like of the best kind. The fly usually is chaos, but this is a different type <laughs> yeah. of chaos this year, isn't it? It's a whole different kind of... Uh, it's like, as Miriam was saying in a... Uh, our CEO, Miriam, was saying in an article the other day, it's a different kind of pain. Because, you know, when the lockdown happened and we were... One of the possibilities was obviously that it might not happen at all. And then the other possibility was that, like, maybe we'll postpone. But, you know, when cinemas reopen, there's going to be social distancing in place. We'd have, like, half the capacity. Crowds wouldn't be able to intermingle, interact. And we were like, that doesn't sound like the flat at all. So then when we kind of realized that the technology was there to do it online um, and we started seriously thinking about it, we were hesitant at first. But then when we started thinking through, like, all the possibilities, we just got really excited about it, like, you know, it's it would be very strange not to be all together in the town hall theater or like down the Rowan Club, but mm. um, we're going to live stream everything that we can so that like all the live and sociable elements of the festival are still there. Like, got to schedule the movies in such a way that we want to try and have all of our audiences watching them at the same time so that everyone's talking. You know, it's a shared conversation. It's still a communal experience. So as things stand, the Galway Film Flower will start on Tuesday, the 7th of July, with an opening film in the evening, as always, and run right through until Sunday evening. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, that's the plan. It's going to be a smaller program, obviously, because, or I suppose maybe not obvious, but we're, we're doing it that way by design. Again, like I was saying, because we don't want... To, like at the physical festival, you might have four or five different films all playing at the same time. Um, and that's part of the festival. The physical festival experience is like all that choice. But part of the fe- like the festival experience online is going to be trying to actually get everyone together, you know, watching the same movies, having the same conversations. So we're not going to play films against each other. It's going to be like one thing at a time, one conversation at a time. So once we open with the opening film on Tuesday, we'll go right through one film at a time until Sunday. Otherwise, we'll try and keep to the schedule like of a physical festival, like all the kind of talks and panel discussions that we would normally have will be a part of this, um, as will the filmmaker Q&As, albeit live streamed instead of in person. We'll still do our uh, pitching award, our script pitching award, uh, live streamed. Uh, our industry meetings will still happen over Zoom. So, yeah. There's loads there now that you gave. First of all, I have to say I'm delighted that it's going to be one movie per slot because it is always that frustrating element. And I know it has to be done because it is a jam-packed festival, but often it happens that there's something on at the same time that you're watching something else that you wanted to see. So it's great (laughs) that that is going to be the case now where you can literally watch everything it is that you want to see. Going back to what you're saying there about Q&A. So people can watch a movie and they stay online and then you're going to introduce possibly the cast and crew from that movie or documentary or so 
and do a, a real-time Q&A with them like you would have done on the stage before? Yep, that's the plan. Uh, we have partnered with uh, Festival Scope and Shift72, two different companies who have sort of banded together to provide this bespoke festival streaming service. They both have loads of experience in the industry for years. Um, Shift72 is the streaming platform that you know does uh, Element Picture streaming uh, service Volta. And Festival Scope have screened films securely online for the industry, for people like uh, the Marsh I Do Film at Cannes and South by Southwest for, for ages. So they're they're well used to this, um, and they have you know uh, they have a, a really good system worked out, and they have really good integrations worked out, so that when we um, you know we we have a, a live Q and A ready to go on Zoom for once the film uh, is ending. Uh, it'll be integrated in such a way that that, that live stream should automatically redirect you um, to, you know, me or whoever talking with the filmmakers either in studio in Galway or perhaps over Zoom if, they, if it's not safe to travel. And so the viewing experience should be seamless as well as secure, which we think will make it enjoyable for everyone. And how is the film fair going to work then? It'll work in much the same way as it would physically, except it's just going to be uh, over Zoom. Filmmakers will apply with their projects. We're going to open the uh, marketplace this week, uh, hopefully. They will be able to request the financiers and distributors, sales agents who are attending. Once we release that list, they'll be able to request the meetings that they'd like. We will then work hard to try and schedule those, like all the meetings uh, that are possible from their wish list. And then during the week of the festival, the filmmaker uh, and the financier will be giving a, a Zoom link and uh, they have 20 minutes to pitch their project. So it's it's much, much like the physical fair, um, only in some ways the, the digital element will actually make things easier, I think, in terms of, you know, presenting graphic supporting material and trailers and things. You know, the financier will just be able to check out your, your package that you've put together by, you know, sharing the screen on your laptop or things like that. So you don't have to have, you know, a load of things with you when you go into your meeting. It's brilliant, actually. And are you going to run masterclasses online as well? Yeah, we'll still have uh, actors masterclass and a directors and a screenwriters masterclass. Again, it's all going to be over conferencing software, whether that's Zoom or something else. It'll still be limited participation in the case of the Actors Masterclass. Hopeful participants will have to send in a CV and a headshot. And uh, again, we'll whittle down the, the numbers that can attend that. Sorry, I have to say, Will, that, OK, I understand why movies are going to be geo-locked because, you know, there could be campaigns to launch movies and documentaries in certain territories post-Irish festivals. Mm-hmm. But the business head of me would say, I just I'm opening this to unlimited tickets and hopefully we'll just go mad on ticket sales but you have done the opposite you're limiting the amount of tickets yeah I mean I guess it's we're existing in a weird place as a an online festival because I think when people think of streaming um events or content they think of being able to do things at their own leisure or you know everything is kind of made for the end user convenience but this is a festival it's not um you know an ongoing service or anything so I think you know we want to create the immediacy of participation. So like, you know, you, you have to book your ticket in advance. Places are limited. Films and events are only available for a certain amount of time. And our aim is that all this will create that festival atmosphere and that immediacy of, I have to participate and I have to take part in these things now because they're not going to be around, uh, you know, for me to do at my leisure uh, a week later. In terms of ticket prices then, uh, I know that you were saying that tickets will be slightly reduced this year cost wise but are you still going to have offers of you know someone can buy a ticket to catch all the 
afternoon screenings if they want for a set fee or something? We are thinking about it, but we're we're hammering all that out now, to be honest. Um, kind of everything new thing that you think of uh, creates logistical issues. So we would like to sell those passes to people in advance. But right now, we're not even sure like how many different time slots will we offer in an afternoon, for example, because, again, we have that policy of we don't want to play films against each other. So, you know, if you're buying a pass for all the afternoon matinees, like what what does that mean? for later on when we launch our program and things like selling tickets in advance you know films will only be available for um, a short window for viewing so how we sell those tickets in advance without activating people's viewing window uh, to watch them you know these are all the little logistical things that we're we're trying to work out but I suppose the bottom line is that we are working to make it as affordable and as accessible as possible. Um, Obviously, the lockdown has created a lot of unemployment. Cost is going to be an issue for people, no doubt about it. And we're working to try and keep ticket prices in and about the €5 kind of mark, which, when you think about it, is about a third of the price that you would pay to go see something at the cinema uh, when cinemas are open. So uh, we think that's good. And it's probably still about half the price or even, again, a third of the price that it costs to stream new films from something like uh, iTunes. So uh, we think we hope people will get on board with that. What's the plan for the launch? Because I presume there won't be a physical launch this year. We will probably aim to launch the program in mid to late June, as per usual, about two weeks out from the festival. Whether or not there'll be a launch event is uh, to be decided. What can you tell us so far about what to expect in this year's program of the Galway Film Flat? Um, it'll be the same uh, diverse mix of you know feature films, documentaries, animations. There'll be a great short film program. Uh, we just received news today that we got another Oscar qualifying category in our short film competition. So wow. now three of the winning short films from this year's festival will go straight onto the Oscars long list after they debut online in Galway, which is pretty exciting. Lots of interactive events. Again, we want to do as many things live online as possible. Um, so panel discussions will still feature heavily. We're working on some great names to give keynote addresses at the FLA Forum this year. It'll be, I think, the Irish industry's first real chance to address publicly, you know, and sort of as a unified voice, how we go forward from here. Uh, you know, people like Screen Ireland and others internationally will address sort of how, how they propose that we go about uh, getting back into production uh, and distribution in a post-pandemic landscape. And do you have an idea of your opening movie, your closing movie, a theme or anything like that this year? Can't go too deep into specifics on the, the films that will be included yet, but I can tell you one of the themes of the festival is going to be coming together. Um, okay. Not for any saccharine reason of like, uh, you know, that we've all been apart. It's something we've been planning for a while, actually. You were probably in Berlin for Berlin Alley in February. Obviously, can never happened. What was the talk amongst the industry back in February about COVID-19 and the possible uh, repercussions it could cause. It's funny, like, it seems uh, like there's kind of a great deal of hubris now looking back, but we, I, it wasn't a large talking point. Um, like, back in February, you know, it was still mainly a thing in the news that was happening in China, and people weren't that concerned about it you know we attended the european film marketplace uh, at the berlin alley as usual we had our days were chock full of meetings um like every year we shook hands with i don't know how many hundreds of people <laughs> and it just it just nobody was was thinking about it um i remember you know 
a few of us thought at one point or commented on the fact that there was less Chinese attendance that year. And, you know, the reason was obvious. But we had no idea that the new epicenter of the virus was going to be in Europe. And, you know, it was only a short couple of weeks later then that, that everything was shut down. I actually went straight from the Berlinale to the Glasgow Film Festival um, and nobody was talking about it there either, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was only, yeah, like what, another two weeks or something after that, that after Glasgow, that, you know, the UK was fast becoming a new epicenter. So it's crazy to look back and think that we, yeah, we had no idea what was coming. We were so ill prepared. Do you think, based on the effort, the work, the reaction you're getting at the moment, do you think that if the FLA this year is a success online, that you may do the same thing in 2021? I think there's definitely things that we've learned that we will keep. You know, that that's actually been surprising to us, how many, uh, even just things like, um, you know, how we do our operations. Um, obviously, we have to work a lot harder to communicate in the planning stages, and it takes up more time. But then in some ways, you know, having to write down all of your ideas all the time, uh, you know, in emails or as proposals or whatever, which is something we would do a lot less when we're just in the same office talking to each other. But it's been amazing for sort of gathering your thoughts for clarifying things. So I think we'll continue to do that a lot more. Um, in planning for the online marketplace meetings, uh, you know, the software that we've been exploring using, I had mentioned earlier how it will be easier in some ways to share your materials with the financiers that you'll be meeting with as a filmmaker uh, because everything is going to be online anyway. So that's something that I think we might keep even if the meetings go back to happening face to face, it's still handy to have a, a digital intermediary there where you know everything is accessible and you don't have to bring things into the meeting with you. So I think that's something that we'll keep. So there's going to be lots of lessons learned, but I, I think you know we and certainly a lot of the other festivals that have made the decision to go online this year aren't in any way suggesting that it's a, a replacement for the cinematic experience. You know, I think a hundred years from now we'll all still be going to see the the bright wall in the dark room. Um, it's just ingrained in us. Uh, there's something special about it, and you know we all can't wait to get back to it. Um, what we're doing, I suppose, we're doing to support filmmakers and to look after our audiences, of course, as we always do. There is going to be this weird time, I think, when cinemas reopen again, where there's going to be a glut of every studio movie that's been held up for the past couple of months that's just going to dominate cinemas. Especially seeing as cinemas will be at half capacity, you know, I think these blockbusters are going to end up running for twice as long. Mm. smaller more independent movies and art house films are just going to get squeezed out i think um yeah. so i think it's important to keep platforms like the flag going that give those filmmakers and those voices and those films um an avenue to to get out there into the world you know absolutely especially when studios are pushing streaming on demand now as well um like small independent films can't even compete with with that marketing monstrosity taking place so we still really do need cinemas and especially festivals out there Definitely. as a voice because you can only watch so many superhero movies and you know, yeah it's funny i'm really excited to see you know the reaction to the online event we ran a, a, a junior film fly event back at the end of april um in partnership with galway 2020 and the european film academy called the the young audience award and it was basically just offering um three european films for young people online a chance for them to to watch them streaming online um, and we had about uh, 16 or 17, 12 to 14 year olds from across Galway uh, taking part in this event and watching the films and, and discussing them over Zoom. 
And the reaction from their parents was so overwhelmingly positive and from the, the kids themselves, of course, as well. But I think the reaction coming from the parents was, just, you know, thank God that there's something available for them that's not uh, a CGI animated, you know, thing about a, an anthropomorphized animal or a feeling or something. You know, they were just delighted to have a diversity of content um, and, and to have a break from the the kind of mass-produced animation playing in the house 24-7. So I think yeah. audiences have been starved for that kind of content during the lockdown, and hopefully the, the FLA will be the solution. Excellent stuff. The 32nd Galway Film FLA will take place online from July 7th at galwayfilmfla.com. Will Fitzgerald, Programme Director, thank you for joining us And Just Like in the Movies. Thanks, Gary.